I grew up in a very disciplined home. My father was, was an Irish Catholic. He understood the value of, strong, of a strong worth ethic, of discipline, and he knew what it took to live out a truly committed Catholic faith. My father was also a school administrator who instilled in his family the value of a good education. But being the last born of five children in my family, I was the spoiled one. That's what my brothers and sisters tell me. And, and I tell them they're absolutely right. I had a happy-go-lucky attitude. I loved attention. I especially loved getting people to laugh. And so in school, I desperately desired to be the class clown. However, I knew that if I was a class clown, when I got home, I would be a dead clown. So therefore, I restrained. Conduct in our family was very important. We needed to live up to our family name, hard work, devotion to family and to the church, obedience to parents and those who were in authority, respect to, shown to all, especially those who were older. This was to be lived out whether we were at home, whether we were at church, whether we were at school or sporting events, school activities, if we were out to eat, or even if we were on vacation and nobody knew who we were, we were Gannons. And as Gannons, we lived up to our name, and if we didn't, there were consequences. And you only needed to suffer the consequences once to get the picture. The Apostle Paul, in this passage of Philippians 1.27 in his letter to the church at Philippi, speaks to this type of idea of behavior. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. This, ver this verse is speaking to our conduct. It's, spe it's speaking to how we live out our life, whether it be in our home, whether it be in our job, whether it be in school, whether it be in church, your neighborhood, your community, literally everywhere that you go, every place that you are, you are to live a life that, is, that your conduct is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. doesn't matter where you are, that is the mandate. And Paul begins this verse with, with this Greek word, manon, or only and always. Only or always conduct yourself. He, he does this with, for emphasis. It is always and only how we are to live. Always we are to live or only we are to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. To live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, to behave in a way that is consistent with the power of the gospel. And this appeal written to the church at Philippi applies not only to those who Paul is writing to, but it applies to each one of us. That we are to live in this manner. As Paul continues on in this verse, he uses a word that is significant and to translate it, it takes five words in my English Bible to translate this one word. Conduct yourselves in a manner that carries the idea of obligation. It is the Greek word polytuisthe. 
polytuose. From this root, we get our English words politics or politician. Simply put, it means to live as a citizen. Paul's readers would have understood this. Philippi became a Roman colony. And Rome took great pride in their nation. All you need to do is is look at world history and you see the pride that Rome took in being Rome. And so Philippi being added as a Roman colony, the people who lived there took great pride and considered, because they were considered Roman citizens. And the Greek and the Roman understood that they had rights and privileges as Romans. But along with these rights and these privileges, came duties and responsibilities, and they took these very seriously. A Roman citizen, no matter where he was, never forgot that he was Roman. Didn't matter where he was, if he went to another nation, if he went to another place, it didn't matter, he acted as a Roman. And those who were around him would know he was a Roman citizen by the way he acted. They were obligated to take part in the affairs of the state something that that we've lost in the United States. We've lost that pride. We've lost that that duty of, of what it is. We are all so committed to our own lives and to our own well-being and to our own wants and our own agendas. They become more important, and, and that was not seen, I mean, that was seen very much so even in the Winter Olympics. If you, imagine, if you remember the Winter Olympics and even flags that were being flown instead of the United States flag, right? It was all about their own agendas. It was all about their own focus, their own life. We've lost that. This verse is referring to this type of devotion, this type of commitment. The apostle is calling all believers to have this type of conduct that is worthy of the gospel. The term worthy means having the weight of another thing. It is is of like value. It is worth as much. In this case, the believer's way of life weighs as much as the gospel they profess to believe. And so how you live is an indication of what you believe about the gospel. And Paul is calling for us to to be worthy of the gospel, to be worthy of the gospel. Today we need the emphasis on on Christian conduct more than ever. I don't know if there has ever been a time when those who claim to be Christians live more like the world, have demonstrated very little fruit of what the gospel is worthy of. And Paul is saying this is inexcusable. It must be resisted. And the only path that leads out of this direction is the path, the narrow path of the true gospel of Christ. We are Christians, and no matter where we are, we must always remember we are Christian, first and foremost. Paul has this sense of commitment and dedication in mind here. If the citizens of of Philippi were so devoted to the honor of Rome, how much more should the believer be devoted to the gospel of Christ? Privilege implies responsibility. Therefore, he says, only and always conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul uses this mandate elsewhere in chapter 4, verse 1 of Ephesians. He says, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. 
In Colossians chapter 1, verse 10, he writes, So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. In 1 Thessalonians in chapter 2, verse 12, he says, So that you would walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. It is to live a life that is consistent with God's revealed word in order that our life corresponds to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he's calling us to. And so now we come to this word here, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. We need to define gospel today. We need to define what is the gospel This verse we are looking at hinges on this term, gospel. And the gospel has been weakened in our society. It's been weakened in our culture. It's been weakened in our churches. The gospel is the mountain peak of doctrine, of the great crown of doctrine, of all the majestic diadem of theology. The crowning jewel is the gospel. But we, however, are discussing so many different things. We're talking about social justice. We're talking about politics. We're talking about Trump. We're talking about Israel. Some are so caught up with end times, eschatology. I can assure you this. You will know everything that you need to know about the second coming of Christ when it happens. Jesus said if the Father is the only one that knows, then the Father is the only one that knows. The first step in the gospel is not man, nor is it man's sin. The first step in the gospel is God. It's who God is. This book that that I've had you look up, Philippians, this book that you hold in your hands, it's not about you. This book is about God and Him revealing Himself to us. You need to understand that this book that you hold in your hands is the only book that speaks to the reality of our world. There's other religions out there that try to speak to the reality of the world. There's other philosophies out there that try to speak to the reality of our world the way our world is, and they all fall short. They cannot define it. They have to change rules of science. They have to change rules, but the Scripture does not need to change. The Scripture is the only truth that we have that pertains to the reality of our world. And in these Scriptures, it speaks about the God who created our world. It's about Him. It manifests His glory, His beauty, His majesty, His holiness, His righteousness, His justice. All of His attributes are manifested in this book. It's about Him. When we make His book about us, we humanize it, we minimize it, we make it to become nothing, and we no longer use it or believe it to be true. And therefore, life becomes all about me, my feelings, my choices, and the gospel gets watered down to no gospel. What we need to do is come back to the truth of the Word of God and to the gospel. What do we know about God from His book? We know that He's holy. We know that He's righteous. We know that He's glorious. We know that He's omniscient, meaning He's all-knowing. We know that He's omnipotent, all-powerful. We know that He's omnipresent, that He's everywhere. There's not a place we can go that He is not. He's incomprehensible, meaning we can never comprehend the fullness of God. We also know He's gracious. He's loving. He's merciful. He's good. He's patient. We also know He's just. 
Turn to Exodus chapter 34. Towards the front of your Bible. Exodus chapter 34, verse 5. It says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. He's talking about God coming down to Moses. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands and for, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren and the third and fourth generations. Do you see a problem in this text? Look at verse 7 again. Who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Right? So, so here we see, here's a God who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet what does it say next? He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. How does God forgive while at the same time punish sin? That's the question. Well, that's the tension of this verse. How does God forgive while at the same time punish our rebellion, punish sin? In Proverbs chapter 15, or 17 verse 15, we see these words concerning God. Proverbs 17, 15. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike, are an abomination to the Lord. Do you see that? It's an abomination to the Lord to justify the wicked, to condemn the righteous. That's an abomination. That's unheard of. Psalm chapter 5, verses 4 through 6. You are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity, all who sin, all who walk in rebellion. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors. That's a strong word for hate. The Lord hates the man of bloodshed and deceit. It doesn't make sense, does it? Because we are all what he just described. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right? The moment you do not acknowledge God as God, you are a sinner. You understand that? The moment you tell a lie, you are a sinner. In Micah chapter 7, verse 18, Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious acts of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you see, he will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. See, who doesn't rejoice over that? Who doesn't rejoice that, that our iniquities are going to be trampled underfoot? We sing about our sins being cast into the depths of the sea, right? But do you ever stop and think about how has God done this? How has God done this? The God who said He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished? The God who takes no pleasure in wickedness? 
The boastful won't stand before him. The God who hates all iniquity, who destroys all who speak falsehood, who hates the man of bloodshed, who hates the man of deceit. The God who said, he who justifies the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. How can a just and righteous God trample underfoot sin and cast them into the depths of the sea? How does he do that and still be just? How does he do that and fulfill the truth of the scriptures? How does God do that? You see, there's an aspect of the gospel and the image of the atonement that has almost disappeared in our society. It's almost gone into obscurity. We preach a gospel today that is so kind and gentle. We focus more upon a God who, who loves us and has a wonderful plan for our life. We focus on a God that says Jesus is the answer to all your needs Jesus died for you so that you may live. The big tendency is to flee any mention of the wrath of God or the curse that is inflicted by God because of sin. And who takes the curse? Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, speaking about Jesus Christ. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all, all of our sins, to fall on him. Speaking of Jesus, verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Do you see that? It pleased God to crush his son. So God didn't just take your sin and trample it under his feet. God didn't just take your sin and roll it up in a ball and cast it into the sea. He's a God of righteousness. He's a God of justice. He could not do that. No, no. God took your sin, every act of sin that you've ever committed, every act of sin that you will ever commit if you've put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, and he placed it on his perfect, spotless son, and he trampled Jesus under his feet. He took every sin and he rolled it up in a ball and he placed it upon Christ and he cast him into the depths of his Sea of wrath. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf in order that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What does it mean that that God made him who knew no sin to be sin? It means that that God himself, you understand, God himself in, in the Trinity, we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and it is God the Son himself who comes down as one of us in the incarnation. And he's not 50% man and 50% God. There would be no salvation if that was true. He's 100% man. He's 100% God. He had to come down and live what we could not live. He had to come down and be sinless. He had to come down and be perfect, which was the demand of God. We must be perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect if you want to get into heaven. You have to be perfect. There's no grading on the scale. 
Jesus had to come and live perfect in the human flesh. But when he went to the cross and God trampled him under his feet, it's God placed his wrath on God the Son because only an infinite God could take an infinite punishment which our sin deserves. Jesus was sinless. It's an amazing when you think about it. Adam was our champion, right? He entered into a perfect world. Think about our champion, Adam. He enters into a perfect world. There is no sin. And, and for Adam, there's only one temptation. Only one. And that temptation is, do not eat of the fruit of the tree of, of the knowledge of good and evil. That's it. That's the only temptation he has to overcome. And what happens? He eats and he brings sin and death to us all. That's why we have evil in the world. You understand that? The evil in the world is not because God placed evil in this world. Do you understand that? The evil that we see in the world, when people say, how could a God do that? What are you talking about? Man has done this. It's our evil, it's our sin that has made our world like it is. That's why the Scripture is the only thing that points to the reality of our world. No other religion points to that reality of our world. We're sinners, and we deserve to be punished. Jesus, on the other hand, He comes into our world, but He comes into a fallen, vile world. Sinful, wickedness, and depravity. And He's the only perfect one. He's the only one who is without sin. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 and 9 says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Let me just explain that to you. Jesus suffered in walking in obedience. Because Jesus was perfect, people persecuted him. Do you understand that? I know what that's like because when I got a 50 on a test, I despised the one who got a 100 because there was no grading on the curve anymore, right? Jesus came and he lived perfect and he suffered because of living perfect. He received the ridicule. In fact, he was murdered brutally on a cross because of it. There was no one else like him. Not his mother, not his stepdad, not his brothers, not his sisters, not his neighbors nor even his disciples. There's no one like Jesus. We can't imagine the suffering that he went through in just his living a perfect life. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. He's faced every temptation that you will ever face in your life. Jesus faced it. And he did it without sin. He did it without sin. See, when we reshingled our house, when, when I was living in Kearney and we had a hell storm, I decided to do the reshingling myself. I don't know if you've ever carried bundles of shingles, right? So you throw a bundle of shingle, shingles on your shoulder and you start walking up the ladder, okay? I can handle a bundle of shingles. But they throw two bundles on your shoulder, now I'm shaking, right? I'm, I'm struggling to get up. They throw a third bundle of shingles, I'm crashing to the ground, broken in a thousand pieces. I can't do that. But Jesus took bundle after bundle after bundle after bundle after bundle after bundle, and he stood. Despite all the temptation, 
he stood the true champion. When they threw the second bundle on Adam, he fell to a thousand pieces. In fact, it was just one temptation, and he was broken into a thousand pieces. Our sin. What does it mean that he was made sin for us? Turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. Jesus lived a perfect life without sin. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. For as many as are the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Curses everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to perform them. Do you see that? Curses everyone who does not abide by it. You fail in one area of the law, you are cursed. That's what it's saying. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. The law was given to show that that we were incapable of living by them. Jesus came and lived it perfectly. See, we don't want to hear these words of woe. We want to hear the words of blessedness from God because we believe in a God who, who is infinitely capable of blessing us, of making our life easy, of making us happy. But He's incapable of cursing us, right? We, we, don't, we don't believe in a God who curses people. We don't believe in a God who, who puts His wrath on people. We, we, we like the God of Aaron. Numbers chapter 6, the Lord bless you. And keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance on you and give you peace. Right? We we love the Beatitudes. When 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 it says, Blessed chapter five of 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 Matthew, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. We like the blessings. We love the blessings. We want to talk about the blessings. But Galatians 3.10 says, Curses everyone who does not abide by all the things that are written in the book of the law to perform them. And if you return to Deuteronomy chapter 7.27, where the curses are affirmed from Mount Ebal, the people shout, Amen, and may it be as you have said. May we be cursed. May we be destroyed if we do not hold to your law. They said amen to it, to the Lord. We will do it. Do you understand what this means? When sinful people are shouting amen to the curses, what does all of holy creation do? Let me, let me just talk about this just for a second. What do the angels do when, when there is a vile sinner, a wretched sinner? Let me tell you what happens. When that wretched sinner dies, when that vile sinner dies, the last thing that they will hear as they step from this life into eternal hell is the applause of heaven, praising God that he just got rid of one vile, rebellious sinner. He rid the earth of him. That's me. But look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ 
redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. What? I read that verse and I think, how can, how can you stand when you read that verse? How can you even breathe? My cold and callous heart takes that for granted. Do you understand that? My cold and callous heart takes for granted that Jesus took that curse. What has our Savior done for us? He became the curse for us. This means that that when you look at Matthew chapter 5 and all the blessedness, it's really for Him now, it's become curses Him. He cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Cursed is, is Jesus and He will not be comforted but will receive my divine wrath. Cursed is he, and he will not inherit the kingdom, or he will not inherit the earth. Cursed, he will not be satisfied. And he will be miserable all his days. Verse 7, cursed, he will receive condemnation, not mercy. Verse 8, he shall be cursed, he shall be cut off from his God. Verse 9, cursed. He will not be a son of God, but he will be disowned and disgraced. If we were to reread Aaron's blessing in number 6, it would be the Lord curse you and abandon you. May the Lord cast you into utter darkness and only give you judgment without grace. May the Lord turn His back on you and remove His peace from you forever. That's what Jesus took. Jesus just didn't die a physical death on the cross. Right? In Luke chapter 22, when it said He began to drop blood in His sweat, He was in agony, not over the physical death that was about to come upon him. I I, I tell you, I would not want to face the physical death that Jesus faced. But you need to understand, there were men who ran to the cross, excited that they could share in the sufferings of Christ. So when Jesus was having agony over the cross, it was not the cross. What Jesus was agonizing over was that He was going to become our curse. He was going to receive the curses of God. He was going to receive the wrath of God. That's the cup that He asks that God would take away. Do you understand that? Until we understand the gospel, until you understand what Jesus did for us, then the gospel we take for granted. This is the cup of wrath that is spoken of in Psalm 75, verse 8, in Jeremiah 25, verses 15 and 16. It's out of love for us that while we are yet sinners, God demonstrated His love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It means that He became sin for us. He became the curse for us. He laid His glory aside. The very incarnation of the glory of God now becomes the very incarnation of the divine curse that on the cross, Jesus now becomes the divine curse and receives the full fury of the wrath of God for every sin ever committed by every person who would ever believe. 
my sin alone would curse him for eternity. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The gospel, Jesus became sin. He became the curse for us so that we might become the righteousness and the blessed of God. When you think of the blessings that you receive on a daily basis, listen, when you think about the blessings that you receive on a daily basis, the blessings that you've already received today, you need to know something. The reason why you were blessed is because he was cursed. The reason why I'm forgiven is because he was forsaken. The reason why I'm declared righteous is because he was condemned. And the reason why I'm blessed is because he was cursed. So Paul says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of this gospel. This is the one we chase after. This is the one that we pursue. This is the one that we desire to be transformed into his likeness. This is the one that we live for. This is the one that we worship, that we adore. He is the one that must increase in my life. I must decrease. In closing, in Revelation chapter 5, listen to these words. Then I looked, verse 11, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, meaning they could not be counted. And they were saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and they worshiped. It should change the way we worship. It should change the way we live. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Father, I am so unworthy. God, my sin is ever before me. And yet seeing this truth of knowing that my sin Jesus took, the curse that my sin deserves, he received, the wrath that belonged to me and my sin, Jesus took and paid it all. To think that I am blessed because my Savior, your Son, The Lord Jesus was cursed. May we live to his glory. And to your glory, Lord, we pray. Amen.